You are listening to the Iran Election 1400 podcast, Intikhobati Iran Hizaro Charsad, brought to you by the Middle East Studies Forum at the Alfred Deakin Institute, Deakin University in Melbourne, Australia. I'm Dr. James Barry. Before we begin, we would just like to apologize to the listeners if there are any issues with sound quality in this episode. We are recording from our homes this week due to a snap COVID lockdown. On this week's show, the official candidates have been announced with significant controversy and several government insiders who in previous elections would have been safe bets for the Guardian Council, like Ali Larijani and Vice President Eshaq Jahangiri, were disqualified. In this episode, we will discuss the reaction to the candidates list, what it says about the direction of the political system of Iran and the relationship between clerical and popular sovereignty. Once again, no women were among the candidates, so we will also cover whether this has settled the meaning of Rajole Siossi as excluding women. Finally, we will deal with the unusual opposition of Ali Larijani to the favourite Ebrahim Raisi, and whether this was a sincere opposition or something more strategic. Joining me this week is Dr. Elham Naij from the University of New South Wales. Welcome, Elham. Hi. And also joining us is Dr. Nasser Gobodzadeh, Senior Lecturer at the Australian Catholic University. Welcome back, Nasser. Thanks. Thanks for having me, James. Later in the program, we are lucky to have as a special guest, Associate Professor Claudia Yagubi of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. As part of this program, in addition to the political discussions, we will bring you some in-depth analysis of important aspects of Iranian society to provide you, the listeners, with a broader understanding of Iran beyond just politics. In this spirit, Claudia will be talking about sire, or temporary marriage in Iran, the politics of the veil, and how the political affects the private, especially with regard to women in Iran. But first, to the news of the week. I'd just like to remind listeners that on our website, www.mesf.org.au, you can find a digest of daily news of events in Iran, as well as information about candidates and the different arms of government. These are also available on our Twitter page, at mesf.org underscore D-E-A-K-I-N, as well as on our Twitter page for the podcast at Iran Votes 1400. But to the week's events. The candidate list was officially announced on Tuesday. However, controversy was already brewing in the days leading up to the announcement and exploded on Monday night when the list was leaked to the media. As expected, the suspected heir apparent, Ebrahim Raisi, was among the seven candidates announced. Alongside him was Saida Jalili, who for many is merely a bow to Raisi's arrow and will stand aside for the former Chief Justice before Election Day. Jalili has already acted as something of a shield, drawing the attacks of Raisi's main challenger, Ali Larijani, away from their target and towards Jalili himself instead. This manifested mostly as a Twitter war between Jalili and Larijani last week. Another two of the seven candidates, Amir Hossein Qazizadeh Hashimi and Ali Reza Zarkani, seem to have been chosen for being more conservative and uncompromising than the Raisi, therefore making the star candidate appear more moderate. Another two seem to represent a kind of muted alternative, Abdul Nasser Hemati, the governor of the Central Bank of Iran and a Rouhani ally sits on one side, and Mohsen Mer Alizadeh, is a token but not overly charismatic reformist sitting on the other. These two give the election an appearance of variety without offering much of a challenge. Finally, there is Mohsen Rezaei, who has been a candidate in most presidential elections over the past 16 years. This is well noted with one Iranian tweeting, which was later quoted in the Washington Observer, that Iranian presidential elections without Rezaei are like kebab without onions. However, It has been the disqualification of several senior government candidates that has caused the most controversy. At the top of the list is Ali Larijani, who tried to offer an alternative to Raisi and was disqualified supposedly because his daughter is resident in the United States. Another surprise disqualification was Eshaq Jahangiri, Iran's first vice president. Both men were rumoured to have travelled to Qom after the news was leaked on Monday night to garner support from senior clerics in that holy city of seminaries. However, both men also quickly conceded and accepted their disqualification a few hours after the list became official. This did not stop others from raising objections to how unbalanced, even by Iranian standards, the list had become. The president himself, Hassan Rouhani, appealed to the Supreme Leader to intervene in a letter on Monday night. One of the members of the Guardian Council who decided on the list, Larijani's brother, Amoli Larijani, 
spoke out against what he said was the interference of the security services in the Guardian Council's decisions. Others said the election was now virtually meaningless, like Ozar Mansouri of the Reform Front, while Hassan Khomeini and Ali Motahari both declared the Republican system of the Islamic Republic was now under threat. Some speculated that this would be the last presidential election, and that a parliamentary executive would be created in the near future. Others guessed that Raisi is being groomed for the Supreme Leader's office, and that the leader, Ali Khamenei, is gravely ill. Others simply said that Iran has gone the way of other countries like Syria or Russia. Syria, of course, holding its own presidential election this week. But similarly, Iran is not allowing any form of electoral competition. So to kick off the discussion, Elham, the reaction of the candidates, the reaction to the candidates list has been largely negative. In your opinion, what does this say about where Iran is heading with this election? Yeah, that's a good question to start with. Um, the reactions were, were, as you said, were largely negative. On social media, people were sort of joking about the this election result because, like, they were already congratulate some were already congratulating Raisi, and they were some were saying that this is a, an election about choosing between Raisi and Raisi. Some others even compared it to the previous presidential round, the one that took place in it happened in. Um, 1981 when uh, Khamenei was chosen uh, and he was sort of the only candidate because like the other candidates said that uh, Khamenei is uh, sort of uh, better than them like more uh, Khamenei is aslah the term like uh, he's a better candidate in a way mm, so like uh, yeah a lot of people were really joking and they were saying that uh, this is not an election and uh, uh, and it is already the, the president president is already elected um yeah so there isn't a sort of opposition or and uh, there, there were also in uh, farce sort of even guessed in a way the result of the uh, election saying that like i don't I, i'm not sure but like rice is gonna get I'm, if I'm not wrong, 70-something percent of the votes. And uh, yeah, again, some people were mocking that uh, Farce could also tell us the exact number of people who voted for Raisi. So yeah, there were a lot of negative reaction. Yeah, and if I, I can add to that, I mean, there are speculations that this could be like the last presidential election and there will be a a political system change. And uh, I don't know, I mean, it's a, uh, it's a bit too much speculation to say that this is uh, gonna be the, the, the process that they have uh, uh, started to change the political system to the, uh, I mean, to the parliamentary system, parliamentarism, to have a prime minister instead of president. Uh, I don't know, it's a, it's a, it's a bit of speculation. This could be actually uh, a pattern, a model for the next presidential election if they have the safe and secure without any problem uh, of electing the candidates that they are interested to have in the office. Uh, but I think that the, the decision by the Guardian Council tells us, us in a bit uh, two points about the way that the conservatives see the situation right now. One is that uh, I think they feel that the situation is under control, I, I would say. And in, sp in spite of the, everything that we hear from uh, most of the opposition groups and from most of the reformists and everybody in the country that the situation is very fragile and the economy is, is, is in, 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 in its worst situation and all those things. But the system uh, tells us that they don't even see it necessary to make a a bit of compromise or give spaces to the reformists or even they could afford to lose some of their own uh, inner circle uh, supporters like by rejecting Larry Jani, I think they will lose some of supporters I mean as with the other candidates uh, as well so firstly I think this tells us a lot about that how they see the situation uh, and if, if they are right or wrong I think that the future will tell us uh, more about if they are right or not and the second thing is related to the next 
uh, uh, I mean, to transition to the, sex, uh, the next supreme leader. And I think that it is very crucial and important for the elite, particularly the conservative elite supreme leader and his office and those who are really in the charge, I mean, the, the part of the guardian corps, uh, to have a smooth transition, to a power transition. And I think that uh, presidents who is going to be in the office for the next four and most probably for the next eight years is so crucial and important in the process and they are so eager to have everybody on the same page at the top of the uh, top level of the political system and i think that's uh, uh, justifies the prices the, the reputational prices that they are paying right now to disqualify figures such as even larry johnny and uh Jangiri. Thank you, Nasser. That's a great point you mentioned. But do you think that, I mean, I agree that the regime is doing its best to take control over the whole election, but could we also see this as a as how fragmented the situation is uh, and then the regime doesn't want to risk any, I mean, anything at all because any risk might end up with another like surprise reformist uh, president, like as we had in the previous round, like with Rouhani or another Pre- previous election, like the one when Khatami uh, won the uh, won the election. So, do you think that the reason behind uh, this strict controlling over the whole uh, election is because uh, the regime is threatened and it doesn't want to risk at all? Yeah, I totally agree with you, and I think that's very important. That's uh, that's the main main reason actually that they have disqualified too many. Uh, uh, too many uh, uh, candidates, uh, those who nominated themselves, and even when Khamenei didn't uh, let uh, Hassan Khomeini to run, to nominate himself, I think that's why, because they don't want to take any risk at all of uh, fra- I mean, like polarizing the election. Still, exactly. I think, yeah. yeah. Um, uh, thank you. It's, it's a very interesting point because something that comes up again and again is that Iran is it unstable? Uh, you know, everyone's always predicting its collapse. Um, of course, people predicting its stability is another thing altogether because of Jimmy Carter's famous claim just before the revolution that Iran was a, an island of stability in the Middle East. And then there are also analysts like Ali Ansari who have said that the, the instability or the appearance of instability is an opportunity. And this is what leads me to something else, what's opportunity for politicians to, to they actually benefit from it. There's, um, there is a, it's how the political system operates. And this leads me to the next question. Uh, Nasser, uh, you've worked a lot on the clerical authority and also the popular sovereignty in, um, in Iran. Uh, what do you think this, uh, this election says about the, the balance or the imbalance between the two arms of sovereignty, clerical and, uh, and popular? And uh, has anything changed or is there a change going on? Uh, I wouldn't, uh, I mean, uh, uh, say that there is a significant change. I mean, one example is, I mean, that we had in the news over the last, uh, I think it was yesterday, the day, the day before that, the Javadia Amali came out and uh, complained about, in a way, uh, that the rejection of this many of the uh, uh, people. I, I don't see it as a change, for example, in his ideas about the uh, the divine sovereignty. He has a book uh, called Walayat uh, Fariq, the 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 Walayat or guardianship of the jurist and uh, and justice. And in one of uh, 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 the chapters of this book, he specifically and very explicitly uh, expresses ideas that the people's opinion doesn't matter in the Walayat Fariq uh, system. The Walayat Fariq gets its legitimacy from the divine uh, sovereignty and the popular sovereignty doesn't have any place. And even in the sentence that is reported from him yesterday or the day before that, he doesn't say that it is the legitimacy of the system is at the stake. He says that we need to, to maintain the support of the people and it will be hard and difficult to survive without the support of the people. That's what exactly he, he, he says, and he reports something from the first infallible Imam, Imam, Imam Ali. And uh, look, I mean, uh, of course, when there is something uh, uh, negative comes from the seminary, always opposition and everybody get excited about that. But we need to see the other part, side of the story as well, that about those who are silent. I mean, there is no any uh, significant sounds or, I mean, uh, objection coming out of the uh, seminary, even in comparing with the last presidential elections, last, uh, I mean, the, the 
historical episodes, there has been always some clerics, Marja Taglids, like sometimes Montezuma Montezuma was alive later, Bayat Zanjani, sometimes Shoberi Zanjani played role, even uh, 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 even Wahid Khorasani at some point in 2009, uh, they played role. I don't see this as significant change, and I don't think that there is, uh, and in seminary, I believe that many of those Marjas they have come to the conclusion and they know that they have lost their influence in the society. I mean, they don't have the power, the influence that they once they used to have in the society, in the political, in, in, in particular, in the uh, political mosaic of the country. Elham, do you want to add anything? Uh, I, I agree with what Jasnasa said. I think this is not much a change from uh, what was happening in the seminary throughout these 40 plus years. Uh, there has always been some criticism in from the clergies but like uh you know i think uh like back back then for example during montazari we had um criticism from some clergies like him but now i mean those criticisms were criticisms uh directed at the structure of the regime but now what we see from the clergies isn't a criticism targeted at the structure of the regime it is what i see what i feel is like with people like Laurie Jani, it is like um a criticism that why we are not included in this election as like why his brother isn't uh, among the candidates. So like this is a, a, a criticism at the structure of the regime. This is uh, like, we want to be part of this structure. This is like claiming their share. So I don't really see it as a big criticism, like much different, even as, as um, Nasser mentioned, I think previous criticisms were uh, more, I could say critical. <laughs> Exactly. Totally agree. Um, thank you. And just for listeners to follow up what's going uh, what sorry, Nasod and Elham are talking about. Yesterday, Ayatollah Javodi Amoli, who uh, is a senior cleric, uh, criticised the, um, the, the choice of candidates. Although uh, it should be added that, um, as both Elham and Nasod pointed out, there have been more serious critics from within who've then gone out of the regime over the years, such as Ayatollah Montazeri, who was the heir apparent to Ayatollah Khomeini before he fell out with him uh, over the 1988 killing of prisoners. Um, he had fallen out with him before generally, but um, that's what's what we're talking about here. And um, just actually to continue with this topic, there are different types of clerics in Iran, and there are those that are known as quietists who often have more senior religious credentials. And then there are the political clerics. Uh, one um, chief among them, of course, is the supreme leader, who is the head of state, uh, and he has a specific. He has actual power to intervene, and he has done so in the past. There is a type of government decree known as Hokme Hokumat, uh, who uh, which is controversial because it's there are some who say it's not legal. Um, but in the past, it has been used by uh, Ayatollah Ali Khamenei to actually undisqualify candidates. Um, Nasu, could you tell us a little bit about Hokbe Hokumat and uh, what how it's come about again in this election? Uh, yes, sure. Hokme uh, Hokumati is actually like a royal decree, which interestingly was introduced to the a political lexicon of the Islamic Republic when a leading reformist figure, uh, Mahdi Karubi, used it to put aside the press reform bill in sixth parliament in 2000. He was the head of the parliament spokesman and Khamenei sent a letter to the reformist uh, majlis to put aside because they were trying to reform the, the, the bill. And, 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 and as for the election, Khamenei has used it once in 2005 to endorse actually two uh, uh, reformist candidates back then, I think it was Mustafa Moyin and uh, Mehrali Zadeh, one of the candidates who has been qualified this time for, for, for the running uh, election. But back then there was a, uh, uh, I mean, there was a justification for, for qualifying them because uh, their presence could help the conservatives to, to win the election. And that's exactly what happened because particularly Mustafa Moin was, uh, was uh, divided the reformist vote between the Mehdi Karubi and Mustafa Moin. And that's why the election went to the second round. And then Ahmadinejad won in 2005 five election. And, and this time uh, there are, um, uh, I mean, discussions that maybe there will be another royal um, um, or state uh, decree by the Khan 
how many to maybe qualify. Particularly, there are talks about the Jahangiri, the vice president, and Ali Larijani. And uh, as we know, Rouhani has sent a letter to, to Khamenei to, to asking him to intervene. But I don't know. I will. I, I personally would be very surprised if if he intervenes and changes because I don't see any. Uh, any reason why or, 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 or motivation for him to do that because most of these figures could could be very uh, uh, detrimental for the, uh, the, the, the the easy pass that the uh, race is is going to have uh, with this uh, other candidates right now Larry Johnny could run on the uh, on the on the reformist platform will be able to 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 uh, to have the votes of the some conservatives particularly the social basis that they have and uh, in even in particular, I think that Larijani would do much better in the uh, uh, presidential debates if there is a if 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 Khamenei intervenes and and qualifies him to run for the election. And I don't think that they will risk that uh, with with Larijani and Jahangiri as well. If uh, if Jahangiri runs, uh, uh, there is a talk that maybe even if they they two were uh, were uh, would be uh, would be running the same. I mean, Jahangiri would would. Uh, Step down in the uh, uh, to to give the space for the for, for Larry Johnny to 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 somehow call um, uh, ally with Larry Johnny. So I don't see any reason or justification or encouragement for the conservatives, which we, we believe that how many plays in their their, their side to qualify them uh, so that to put races easy pass to the presidential office uh, at risk. Uh, thank you for that, Nasser. Um... Now, again, this time around, as there have been in every election, there were no women candidates. Uh, Elham, do you, would you say that this has clarified whether women are barred from the presidency? And is the term Rajole COC uh, clarified or is it still ambiguous? Um, as we discussed in the previous episodes, I think that the regime doesn't want to be clear on this. And that's why the term Rajola CLC has to remain ambiguous there. And it was ambiguous from the beginning. So it is, as we mentioned earlier, it is to satisfy both the conservative side of the society and the more progressive side of the society. And whenever they want to uh, say that we don't have these structural barriers against women's presidency, they say, okay, we don't, uh, we don't have any women, female presidents, because either women are they don't qualify. So they introduce the issue of women's qualifications rather than the, um, that the fact that women are not allowed to be a president. Uh, so, um, and the, the, I mean, the, the topic, it seems that the topic of Rajola CLC and women's uh, presence as a candidate in the elections, uh, it has become a sort of hot topic in each presidential Round. So it also uh, popped up in the previous uh, election. Uh, I think in 2017, again, uh, the question of Rajol Siasi um, was mentioned, and then uh, there were efforts to clarify this term. But as as I, I think, uh, they don't really want it to be clear. And women are barred. I think, yes, women are barred from becoming a president in Iran. And for that, there are as we mentioned earlier in the previous episodes, there are many structural, by which I mean legal obstacles within the constitution and within the whole structure of the regime that doesn't allow women to become a president. So like, um, even like in this round, um, Hadi Tahan Nazif mentioned that a woman in Iran, women in Iran aren't elected as a president because uh, there is they are not publicly welcomed. He used the term umumi. Uh, women don't have umumi. So uh, which is like very ridiculous ridiculous because uh, the whole point about an election is that people nominate themselves and then the, the whole society decides on one of them and one is more welcome than, than the rest of the candidates. So that's why like if we have, I don't know, five candidates or 10 or whatever number, one of them is welcomed more. So one has more Erbale Umumi. And then this even, I, I think this even questions the whole the legitimacy, legitimacy of the whole uh, election. Because like, if we think about Erbale Umumi or, or public, public welcoming of the president, then in this presidential round, uh, 
Ahmadinejad was disqualified and he was the president for two pres uh, presidential rounds. So what happens when like a person who was publicly welcomed in the previous rounds, now he is, is disqualified. So I think this even question, and it, the same also happens when a person like Lari Johnny or Jahangiri, these are people with, um, with, uh, with uh, like high positions in the regime or, or they had or they have uh, high positions in the regime. So if they don't have public, they are not publicly welcomed. So why are these people in these high po political positions in the regime? Uh, yeah, so I think the regime doesn't want to be clear on this and, and it actually benefits from this ambiguity on the term of Rajul Siasi. And I think it's gonna pop up again in the next presidential round because like this is women's issues it has become a, sort of a fashion to talk about. So in each round, th this question this question pops up and then there is, it, it heats up the uh, discussions around the election and then it fades away. Yeah, and it's really interesting that whenever that there have been opportunities for women to run for elections, I mean, it be the parliamentary uh, parliamentary election or the city and village councils they have been very successful i mean in the uh, i think it was in the sixth parliament that uh, faiza hashemi was the first one that uh, in tehran of course they changed the votes uh, as as it was uh, later revealed but whenever that they have given opportunity that there have been they have been very popular uh, in spite of the statements like this that they that the, 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 the people doesn't want them Exactly. And if I mean, if people don't want uh, women as their president, let a woman be nominated and then people will decide that, OK, we don't want this woman as our president. But like disqualifying women from the beginning is just pointless. Just one last question before we finish up for this session. Uh, some people have put forward the idea that there's this manufactured opposition within uh, the system. And that's what Lari Johnny was all about, creating the veneer of being an opposition. Um, now, we've talked to, talked a bit about uh, Lari Johnny throughout all this discussion. Uh, what are your thoughts, uh, Elham and Nasser, about uh, whether there's any truth in this? He could be uh, that option. I mean, look, um, Lari Johnny is not a Sand Rohani. Rohani was not a reformist. Rohani was in the, in the conservative camp. Uh, during the reform era, but he ran as a, a like insider opposition uh, in, in 2000, uh, 2013. And uh, uh, the people voted for him because they were scared of Raisi becoming the next president. And now the same scenario could be repeated. I don't know to what extent people would buy that scenario again if, if uh, Larry Johnny was running. But now I think that the question is uh, in a way, pointless because they haven't let Larry Jani have this opportunity. And maybe one of the reasons that Larry Jani was disqualified because they had, as Elham earlier mentioned correctly, that they had uh, this, uh, this speculation that maybe Larry Jani will be able to run as a uh, opposition and will, uh, will, will be able to mobilize people, polarize the political, uh, uh, political, uh, uh, political situation. And that's why they didn't want to take the risk. Yeah, I totally agree with what just Nasser mentioned. Actually, I think the regime just uh, presidential round, it doesn't want to create any sort of opposition. Uh, the regime wants the result of the uh, election to be clear from the beginning. And I think the regime doesn't uh, even risk any doubts uh, uh, about, I mean, even the regime doesn't try to save the face and create an illusion of opposition in this uh, election. Uh, if Larijani was included among the uh, candidates, then there would be some sort of illusionary opposition, but uh, from the candidates that we have at the moment, uh, I don't see any any sort of like uh, competition in this uh, round. Well, thank you, Nasser, and thank you, Elham, for your lively discussion. Uh, we're going to take a short break now, and we'll be back with an interview with Associate Professor Claudia, Claudia Yagubi of the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill.
Welcome back to the Iran Election 1400 podcast in the Khobati Iran Hizarot Charsad, brought to you by the Middle East Studies Forum at the Alfred Deakin Institute, Deakin University. Today's guest is Claudia Yaqubi. Claudia Yaqubi is a Russian Institute Associate Professor in Persian Studies at the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. She is the author of Temporary Marriage in Iran, Gender and Body Politics in Modern Iranian Literature and Film, published with Cambridge University Press in 2020, and Subjectivity in Atar, Persian Sufism and European Mysticism, published by Purdue in 2017. As an Iranian-Armenian-American, Yagubi's research concerns the literature of the Middle East with a special focus on Persian and Armenian literature. Claudia Yagubi's third book project is tentatively titled Multiple Consciousness, Transnationalism in Iranian-Armenian Cultural Productions. This project examines the various creative ways that Iranian-Armenian authors and artists as members of religious and cultural minority populations of Iran and later in the diaspora in the US craft and negotiate a unique notion of self, which is at odds with the wish to be integrated into mainstream society while maintaining ties with the homeland. Welcome, Claudia. Thank you, Elham, for this kind introduction, and thanks, James, for inviting me to the podcast. I'm happy to be here today. It's a pleasure to have you with us. First, could you please explain to the listener what Sire is and how does it differ from other categories of marriage in Iran? Of course. So, as Elham mentioned, I explored Sire marriages in my second book in the literature and film of modern Iran. But before um, going into the cultural productions, I want to emphasize that Sireh is a tradition that predates Islam in the Arabian Peninsula. And it remains a legitimate function among the Iranian 12 Shiites. And even though Omar II Caliph outlawed Sireh, Shiites um, have chosen to view this command as optional and non-binding. And even though it is banned in Sunni communities, some forms of the custom have even survived in Sunni communities in the form of unions known as Orfi or Mesyar. As is it's um, in the Shiite cousin, Sunni temporary marriages or Sireh marriages have mostly functioned in private and in secret until recent times. And Shiites often argue for the legitimacy of this kind of marriage using the Quran, noting that the Prophet himself permitted it. And they use this um, surah from Quran, which um, literally says that that which has been made lawful or halal by the Prophet is halal till the day of resurrection. And that which has been forbidden or haram is haram till the day of resurrection. So Shiites agree that Omar had forbidden temporary marriage. However, um, he maintained that this command was a political act at the time and not a legal ruling based on the Sharia. So that's why temporary marriage or Sireh marriages have survived and remain historically controversial. Under um, Iranian civil law, however, we have two kinds of, you know, two types of recognized marriages, one of which is nikah, or the formal type of marriage, and the other one is sireh, or the temporary marriage, which in Arabic is also called mutah. The basis for nikah marriage is socially, which is also socially superior to sireh marriages, is that the couple is required to wed permanently and nothing should separate them but divorce or death. And within the limits of this nikah or the formal marriage, Islam permits sexual life. But in sireh marriages, the couple outlines the duration of the marriage and the specified financial obligations of the man towards his sireh wife. And in this type of marriage, there is no divorce. And by the end of the specified timeline, the temporary spouses separate from one another unless they choose to renew the contract. But if they choose to separate, there is um, that financial arrangement or uh, which is called adjur that has to be paid and after that they are done. So the primary purpose of NECA is the establishment of family and procreation while in sire marriages, um, you know, the main purpose is sexual gratification and often that of the man. So despite the legality and legitimization of both marriages in Shia Islam, particularly in Iran, 
Serein marriages carry a social stigma that marks the couple, particularly the woman who enters such marriages, as well as the union itself as inferior to Nekah unions. Uh, thank you so much, Claudia. Um, in your book, you outline how Sirei is depicted in literature and film and its relationship with the stigma of sex work and the role of the clergy, as well as times where it was encouraged, such as after the Iran-Iraq war. Can you speak a little about the various moral judgments made about Syria and how they are depicted in the arts? So I, in my book, I looked at the cultural productions, um, such as novels and short stories from the Pahlavi era, and then to cinematic works from um, the Islamic Republic. And through a quick analysis of the literature during the Pahlavi era, we see that Syria women characters frequently enter socio-sexual relationships with men out of economic obligations. However, the truth of the matter is that Sire relationships are formed due to a web of factors rather than just this simple financial dependency. Other factors to name a few include, for example, saving the family's honor by being able to call oneself married or believing in the heavenly reward associated with Syria marriages. Now, there's a stark difference between cultural productions of these two uh, periods on the topic of Syria. And uh, the films that I examined under the Islamic Republic, even though um, we do have the same factors um, in the cultural productions under the Islamic Republic, one additional thing that we see during this time is that women who enter Syria marriages at this time period are educated and independent women seeking their rights to their body, attempting to explore their sexuality, desiring to satisfy their sexual needs, or even wanting to be mothers, even if it, it means single motherhood. So all in all, we see that these cultural productions show that within Syria marriages, the female body is um, disciplined and policed through various sociocultural, political, and religious institutions to, to maintain male dominance and satisfy male sexual pleasure and uh, male social status. So the female body, in this case, in my work, the Sire women characters' bodies, is portrayed as the site where a multitude of sociocultural experiences and powers are inscribed and negotiated. So what I did in my work looking at these two time periods, I also show that um, the, the different strategies that were adopted by these two regimes, the Pahlavi and Islamic regime, have not diminished that social stigma associated with Syrian. They have rather perpetuated the victimization of women more often, uh, most often under the facade of religious regulation. And all of the works that I examined illustrate how at first these Sire women are desired and lusted after, but then depicted and um, despised and discarded when they pose a threat to the formal marriage of the man or the political or social reputation of, um, of, the, of this man. However, it also becomes apparent in these works that living invisibly on the margins of the society also heightens the visibility of these women. So Sire women um, in these cultural productions were simultaneously at the margins and at the center. So this hypervisibility hints at the um, Sire women's symbolic social and sexual power, even though they don't have that actual power. It, symbolically, they do um, have some sort of power because they pose some, uh, that threat to the reputation and formal marriage of the men. So by focusing on Sire in my book, I tried to demonstrate how the female body um, historically has become this catalyst for a symbolic struggle between the social, cultural, religious, and sexual forces that define modern Iranian womanhood. Thank you so much, Professor Yagubi. Uh, these are so much inspiring, and I remember how was how much I was inspired when I was doing my own PhD research, particularly the ideas you talk about um, how the female body uh, is a side where socio-political 
ideologies are mapped onto and also that how they can uh, pose a threat to the dominant ideologies. Um, a theme I've noticed across your most recent work is how the private is also the political. Are you able to say a few words about how this is important to understanding societal and political attitudes towards women in contemporary Iran? Elham, first let me thank you for reading my work and admiring it. I do admire your work as well and many other colleagues' works in, um, in the context of female body. But um, back to your question, yes, the most private matter of women's lives, their bodies, their sexuality, is frequently the canvas on which the political and religious institutions project their ideas. And this is not exclusive to Iran. Let me add this part. This is um, something that we can see in many different societies. The socio-political discourses dictate what a woman should or should not do with, with her body. And it's not just socio-political discourses. There can be cultural, religious, and other uh, factors involved too. In this way, the boundaries between the personal and the political are blurred as the personal lives and bodies and sexualities of women in my book, Iranian Sire Women, become the battleground for a struggle of power between politics and religion and culture um, and society. The literature and film of modern Iran manifest this female body as the locus for sociocultural policing, a site of social inscriptions, which is docile, subordinate, and passive. Now, with sociocultural codes and power structures inscribed on the female body, cultural productions illuminate how this female body is produced through an interaction of disciplinary institutions and governments within a patriarchal system. Viewing the female body as a site for all these sociocultural, religious, and political inscriptions translates into understanding how the female body functions as a sex object, particu particularly as an object of a male desire that is always controlled. They portray how the most private and personal experiences of women are tightly associated with the larger sociopolitical structures of a nation at different historical junctures. So that is what I've done in the book. But in addition to the book, I've done other articles um, and you know smaller projects which focus on the same topic as well. Thank you so much. It's very fascinating indeed. Uh, the veil or hijab is a contentious issue in Iran. And as you have written, is more than a religious obligation. Uh, it is also tied with expressions of political loyalty and so social and economic mobility. Uh, can you please tell the listeners a bit about your comparative research on literature produced by Iranian women and cyber activism regarding the veil? What are the continuities and changes between these two mediums and how they approach the politics of veiling? So as I mentioned, one of the smaller projects or article projects that I've done, which also focuses on the questions of the private and the public and the personal and the political um, in Iranian um, society and with Iranian women's rights and the female body in ir the context of Iran is an article that will just um, be published in July of this year, July 2021, on the question of veil. So what I did was I looked at, um, you know, different ways that the veil has been used as a tool to police and control women. So over the past 40 plus years after the Islamic revolution, Iranian, um, we know that Iranian women have continued asserting themselves in public spaces, which are designed to exclude them. And they, ha they have you know, been resisting this targeted violence and media narratives aimed at disqualifying them from accessing these public spaces. Now, often this has this kind of policing and control and disqualification has been done via strategic use of the veil. Focusing on gender segregation and subordination of the female body through dress codes, the Islamic Republic's policies have initiated a shift from public acts of resistance to cyber activism and cyber protests. And Iranian women have struggled for the right to veil or unveil for almost 170 years. 
and important, you know, uh, historical resistance to national control of the veil can be located, for example, in the 1848 Radical Act of uh, Unveiling by Tahir Quratul Ain, or the 1936 Police Enforced Unveiling Decree of Reza Shah, and the 1979 Compulsory Veiling Law by, um, you know, Khomeini. These resistances have taken various forms and shapes from text-based petitions to creative writing to today's cyber activism for Iranian uh, women's rights activists and women. For years after the Islamic revolution, women have launched text-based campaigns for their basic rights, both in collectives and individually. Now, one of the most popular and important uh, examples of this text-based petitions was the 2006 1 million signatures for the repeal of discriminatory laws. Today's Iranian women, however, have realized that protests centered within the cyberspace cyber and the World Wide Web are more effective forms of bringing various types of activisms together and merging the local with the global. So this form of protest, this cyber activism and cyber protest continues, however, unabated amid state internet and cyber surveillance. That is Islamic Republic, you know, again, surveilling and policing even the internet and cyber activity of these um, individuals. And, which further demonstrates the risks that Iranian women are willing to take to voice their stories and assert themselves in the public. Now from the cyber activism, of course, is not new and uh, again, exclusive to Iran from the Arab Spring and Wall Street protests of 2010 to 2012 to the Girls of Revolution Street or Dukhtaran e Khiyabane in 2017 to today, Cyber, cyberspace has evolved into a forum for protest, basically. It mobilizes exigencies quickly and snowballs in a matter of hours. So it works pretty well for this kind of activism. And Iranian women have also, in addition to you know, the text-based petitions and cyber activism, have also engaged in various um, resistances against compulsory veiling through their creative writings. For example, if we look at the literature of the past 40 years, we'll find examples of such works, for example, in Monirut Ragwanipur or Fereshte Mulavi's works where we see resistances to um, you know, the compulsory veiling in Iran. And I believe that this creative writing and literary works of resistance are the lesser acknowledged forms of protest against the compulsory veiling, which we don't hear um, about often. And that's why I have emphasized that in my article. Yeah, you're very right. Thank you. And uh, finally, as someone who has spent most of your life in Iran, can you please tell us uh, something about your memories of presidential elections? Oh, yes. I, um, I can tell you about the, um, the, the elections in 19... 97, which resulted in Khatami's presidency. At the time, I was a professor at the Islamic Azad University in Rudehen branch, and um, I was on campus on the day of election. So uh, with my colleagues, we walked to one of the centers and we cast our ballot. Um, and, and it was a very promising time, and we were very hopeful at the time with Khatami's presidency. Now, on the contrary, I vividly remember the 2005 presidential elections, which resulted in Ahmadinejad's first uh, presidency, first term presidency, which was a very frustrating and scary time. The day of the um, you know, elections, the day that the ballots were being counted and the results were to be announced, I had a full day of teaching at the Kish Language Institute in Vanak in Tehran. And I, I recall that we were, um, with my colleagues, we were all so nervous and anxious to hear the results because it, it, we almost had this premonition that um, something unpleasant was about to happen. So every 30 minutes we were walking out of our classrooms and checking with each other and checking 
checking with other colleagues who didn't have classes to see if the results had been announced and who was ahead of, you know, who. And even though we didn't have a better, you know, candidate at the time because the other candidate was Rafsan Johnny, but it was the same as today. The case was the bad and the worst, and we didn't have an ideal candidate as um, we, we don't even today um, as well. So after the um, Ahmadinejad's, you know, presidency in, in 2005, I left Iran at, actually after a year in 2006. The question between the bad and the worst, that was something that also came up in the previous election, when we were choosing between Rouhani and Raisi, but I think this is something that is different in this year's election round, which I think, I don't see this atmosphere, I mean, the atmosphere of choosing between the bad and the worst. Uh, thank you so much, uh, dear Professor Yagobi. It was lovely to hear about your research and thank you for sharing, for sharing your thoughts with us. Uh, in Iran election, Hazar Charsat. Thanks for listening to me. You are listening to the Iran election 1400 podcast, Intakhobati Iran Hazar Charsat, brought to you by the Middle East Studies Forum at the Alfred Deakin Institute, Deakin University. Before we finish, just a reminder to listeners, both Nas- both Nasser and myself will be appearing alongside another colleague from Mesif, Dr. Mahmoud Pargul, for a discussion of the Iranian presidential election. The event is in Persian and is hosted by the Iranian Student Association at the University of New South Wales. It is on Tuesday during the 1st, 7pm. You can find out more at their Facebook page, which is I-R-A-N-S-A Sydney, or go to our Twitter pages. That's all we have time for. Thank you, Elham. Thank you for having me. It was a pleasure. And thank you, Nasser, as well, for being here. Thanks, James, for having me. Next week, we'll be looking a little bit more at the campaign strategies of the candidates, as well as the debates and promotional videos. Thank you for listening to the Iran Election 1400 podcast. Don't forget to subscribe to our podcast and follow us on Twitter at IranVotes1400. And don't forget to visit our website, www.mesf.org.au for daily news and analysis, as well as information about candidates and upcoming events. Until next week, Kheli Mamnun Vahodo Hafez.